We're spending the fall in the book of Romans. We'll slow down a little bit for Advent and focus on the description of life in the Spirit, known as chapter 8. But uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to finish the book, and we're going at a very fast pace, because going at a fast pace, we can see the argument that Paul's making. Almost every two to three verses could be preached in and of themselves, and we unpack them, especially these particular chapters, which quote the Old Testament a lot more. Um, But we miss the scope if we go down to the minutia. So I'm going to read from Romans 10 and 11. You can follow along on the screen or with your uh, Bible. I'm going to skip some verses, then I'll come back to them when I preach on them. And I mean by that I'm not going to read every verse, but I am going to talk about every verse. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. I'm in verse 28 now, and then 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I probably tell too many stories about my morning hoops basketball group 
Um, I think I've told most of you in some respect that they like, they think it's interesting that I'm a pastor because many of them like, oh, churches still exist. Some of them go to church. Um, This week, one of the men asked what I was preaching on and then he started naming the parables he could remember. And I said, Romans 10 and 11. And he said, what's that about? And I said, is God trustworthy? And he stopped because he was, you know, he was kind of interested and he was kind of joking. And then he was like, oh, that's a very important question. I said, I agree. And this is why it's worth it to explore and study and be gripped by the longest sustained argument in the New Testament, which is Romans 1 through 11, and I think the most important letter ever written. The backbone of the question that Paul is addressing is, is God trustworthy? The anguish he's experiencing, I don't know if you picked up on it based upon my reading of the text and um, how these somewhat old words can sound to us, Paul is distressed. And we don't know how many Jews of the Roman Empire did or did not receive the righteousness of Christ through faith in him. Paul himself is a Jew, so it certainly wasn't 0%. The disciples were all Jewish, became followers of Christ. But many rejected Jesus. And Paul is anguished over this. He's talking to both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians about it. But what he's talking about in Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is, is God trustworthy because he made these covenants. He makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with the world after the grievous to him events of the flood, Genesis 6 through 8. He makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15 and 17. He makes a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. He makes a covenant with David. And then he talks about a new covenant. So how come those people who received those covenants are not all trusting Christ? Paul's wrestling with that not only for the sake of his brothers and sisters who weren't lacking in zeal, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, who weren't lacking knowledge, but were not putting their faith in Jesus, and it was anguishing him. How can this be? Is the same God of the Old Testament the one who is incarnate in Jesus? Paul isn't exploring that directly, but that's the link between the covenants. He's going to quote the Old Testament more than anywhere else in the book in chapters 9 through 11 to show that Isaiah and Moses and David saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. But the backbone of that is, is God trustworthy? Is God faithful to his people? Romans, or Revelation 7 addresses this in an apocalyptic way. Romans 9, 10, and 11 addresses it. Jesus addressed it head on by caring for everyone so much that he got involved as a man. Romans 1 through 4 are about the state of the world after the fall of man, all the things that God gave it over to, and how our need is to the uttermost. I'm using the book of Hebrews to summarize Romans 1 through 4. Romans 5 through 8 is about the life and the spirit that we receive by faith, and that life is a flourishing everyday life. That's not simply existing. And Romans 9 through 11 is, is God faithful to his people? Paul's going to conclude many, many times, yes, but he's also going to be anguished in that. 
And friends, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, when we see suffering near or far, most of the time we're going to wonder, at a pretty gut level, is God good? And is he in control? If he's in control, I can't look at the suffering of my friend or spouse or around the world and believe that he's actually fully in control and good. If he's good, maybe he doesn't actually have control over everything. And Romans 9 through 11 doesn't speak to that directly. It speaks to it indirectly through the scope of the scriptures. Is God faithful to his people? Does he keep his promises? Salvation, which is a received thing for all humans, Jew and Gentile, is first received. One of the things that I find, and I've said this throughout the series, one of the things that surprised me about re-studying Romans was how worshipful Paul is. And even in chapters 10 and 11, when he's explaining why did so many of the Jewish people reject Jesus, he's also anguished and hopeful and worshipful. And I kind of want to take a whole, but I'm not going to, I kind of want to take a whole sermon and talk about that, because isn't that the Christian opportunity? That we can have joy and still be anguished at our friends who have not yet put their faith in Jesus, and we can be confident in God's plan all at the same time. Paul's going to speak kind of theologically. He's going to speak sermonically. He's going to quote poetry. He's obviously upset that more of his brothers and sisters are not turning to Christ, and yet he's hopeful and confident at the same time. In verse 8 of chapter 11, it says, But what does it say? The word is near you in your word, in your mouth, and in your heart. He's quoting uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, which explains the previous verses. We don't need to do the work of God again. Then he goes on to say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I hope that's not the first time you've heard that scripture. It's encouraging and informative. Salvation is by Jesus alone. We receive by faith alone. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then the scripture that I actually read is is Paul beginning to grow in excitement that perhaps the Roman Christians are going to support his mission. He's expecting to go to Rome and then he's expecting to go on to Spain to continue to proclaim the gospel there. And he's going to ask them directly and here he's beginning the indirect ask, are you going to support that mission? But first, and, and integrated into that is his explanation that many Jewish brothers and sisters not lacking for zeal did not trust Christ and his work and even the eyewitness accounts that many of them heard. Faith is first received, not first achieved through works. In some ways, this is the most complicated part of Christianity and the most basic part of Christianity. Complicated in understanding how Moses and Elijah and Isaiah explain 
Jesus is coming and Paul is the best explainer of that. And then at the same time, we cannot save ourselves. We are saved by receiving with open hands what Jesus did for us. Then responding. What the notes are supposed to say is salvation received and taken in. And when they don't have a word, it means I screwed it up. You guys all know that by now. Not taken, but taken in. First we receive then we act accordingly. And what the Jewish people that Paul is talking about did not do was they did not receive, and then they did not act in accordance with that. In chapter 11, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So it wasn't all of them, but many of them, more than Paul would have expected. Jesus shared this anguish. Before he went to the cross, he lamented that more of his friends and family would not listen to him and did not. We experience that, I think, less profoundly than Paul and Jesus, and yet we have friends and neighbors who have heard the good news and have not received it and then have not taken it into their lives and applied it. And that makes us sad. We continue to befriend them. We continue to pray for them. But why did that happen in light of all of the promises? So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And Paul is both quoting Elijah because um, he's worth quoting, but also because I, I, Elijah is one of the most anguished characters we ever see. Following one of the more profound moments in any prophet's life, he fell into a great depression. And I'm not using that word clinically, but if you read the story of Elijah, it knocked him flat watching people not respond to the love of God that is received by faith even before Jesus' time. And Paul is experiencing a similar anguish. And Jesus lamented over people having life offered to them and not receiving it. And instead choosing to attempt to save themselves through their good works, through religious acts, through good things like generosity and how we use our words and actions. And yet, if we're relying on those, this is where Christianity is very complex and very basic at the same time. If we expect those to merit favor with God, we have missed it. But if we are so moved by Jesus' work on our behalf, Romans 1 through 4, then we receive life in the Spirit, Romans 5 through 8, and then we go back and start thinking about the Old Testament and we wonder, is God trustworthy? The answer is yes. Even as we are both saddened that many do not receive justification by faith and then don't respond to it in love. What it shows is his kindness. The most important part of this scripture is the phrase, how much more? But here, verses 20 through 24, of chapter 11. Why is it, 
as it relates to the Jews that many of them did not receive faith? And why is it, how does it relate to us, to our life? First to the Roman Gentile Christians, also to the Roman Jewish Christians, and then by extension to us. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? God both hardened and allowed a spiritual blindness and deafness to the message of Jesus to bring us in and to make them jealous. And don't define jealousy the way our culture does is like you're supposed to be more mature than that. Jealousy biblically is the desire for something else. And it's not sin. Jealousy in verses 11 and 12 that I read a few moments ago is our lives are to be marked by hope and peace and joy so much so that people are like, where did that come from? And it doesn't look like gleeful happiness all the time. It looks more like confidence and a peace even when we're suffering or seeing suffering. Why did God allow them to stumble? That even more might be engrafted later. And for our purposes, what we notice is God allowed them to be spiritually blind and deaf that we might be brought in. But Paul is, while he's sad in teaching us that, he's also hopeful. That's why he says, how much more? Of the, how much more beautiful, how much more awe-inspiring will the eventual inclusion of all God's people be? And did you catch in verses 20 through 24 what Paul's fully expecting to be the result? He doesn't command it here because he's still explaining to us that God is trustworthy of all of the promises he made in the Old Testament. But he's expecting that this makes us less arrogant. Preaching on Romans 10 and 11, I wonder if you see the immediate application. I've been saying this throughout the time that I'm preaching on it, but it's so immediately applicable. If God pursued us in love and the world is as dark and given over to darkness as Romans 1 says, then we're in awe of his pursuit of us and it makes us less arrogant, among other things. And it replaces that arrogance with humility and awe of him. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. And that's not be afraid, like nervous, not startled. It's be in awe that the world is that broken that sinful, that dark. And that darkness is minimized compared to the love of God. And that God pursued you in love and brought him to yourself. If that doesn't create awe in you, then you don't understand it. And whose fault is that? Mine. But the text expects that we're in awe, that we're given over to idolatry, 
that we're given over to wild sexual immorality, that we're given over to terrible tendencies within community. That's the end of Romans chapter 11. But God rescued us, brought us to himself, justified us through his work, then gave us the Holy Spirit that we get to live, that, that indwells us. Salvation received and then taken in by us and responded to shows his kindness and his mercy. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible. One of my very favorite parts of it is that Peter, in one of his letters, wrote that he had read Paul and he doesn't fully understand Paul. How encouraging. How lovely that the Bible, biblical authors were speaking with one another. It reminds us of the historical verifiability of the scriptures and makes us feel pretty good about sometimes getting a little tangled up in the Apostle Paul's incredible explanation of the prophetic work of Jesus telling us the truth about the world and his work in it. And then even Paul, I think, is humble as he concludes his sustained argument about justification by faith, life in the Spirit, and is God trustworthy with some humble words of his own. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And here he's speaking pastorally, much in the same way in verses 20 through 24. He's not saying if you don't stand fast in faith, God's going to um, send you to hell. Verse 29 says, as regards the gospel, not, yeah, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But when he says stand fast, he's speaking sermonically and encouragingly. Same here. He's not saying we shouldn't search God's word. He's not saying we shouldn't long to understand it more and more throughout our life, but he's reminding us that our understanding is going to be partial. He's not quoting Job. He's quoting the Psalms, but it reminds me of God's words back to Job about all that Job would not ever understand about his suffering. But as he concludes, again, the longest sustained argument in the New Testament, and I, he is humble before it also. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has give, been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be re repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. We long to understand, and yet we don't fully understand. Paul longed to understand and didn't fully understand God's ways. But he knows that God is trustworthy. And he spent some energy helping the Roman Christians understand that, and by extension, us. Our worship team um, has been playing, I think for almost a year, a song, and the chorus goes, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so so good. And yeah, we don't feel that way, right? In our, in our weaker moments or our troubled moments or our fatigue or after someone harms us or after we harm someone else, we wonder about that. And that's what we need Romans 1 through 4 that tells us with incredible clarity how dark the world is and how our need for Christ is to the uttermost. And then we need Romans 5 through 8 saying, and he met it through Jesus' work and giving us the Holy Spirit. And then we're wondering if we're students of the scripture, does this match up with Yahweh 
and his steadfast love of the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, yes. Then indeed we can sing, all my life you have been faithful and so, so good. The application is, is somewhat simple, but very profound. We believe, and we belong to believe, we long to believe more deeply. We trust him, and we long to trust him more easily in the future, because the promise when we trust him is life. We love him, and we long to increase in our affection for him. Affection of mind, affection of action, affection also of emotions. Would you pray with me? God, we are indeed in awe of your pursuing love. We long, like Paul, for all of our friends and family and neighbors to trust you because you are trustworthy. We believe you and in you strengthen our belief. We trust you, Lord, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that as you indwell us, you would make it ever increasingly simpler for us to trust you with our words, with our responsibilities, with our time. And we love you, God, with our very being, and we ask that you would grow us in that love. Amen.